This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Traps! The Veiled Prophet. Futurist Cuisine. And the Suppression of Ophiuchus. Good day, everyone. It's your math teacher, Mr. Height, and I'm joined by my prize student, Robin. Today, we're going on a mathematical adventure with Infinity Tiles. Hi, Mr. Height. Infinity Tiles? What's that? Well, imagine an infinite puzzle that's not just fun, but also teaches spatial reasoning. And guess what, Robin? These tiles are made right here in the USA from recycled plastic. That's pretty cool, Mr. Height. But I'm Canadian. Why should I care about these tiles? Ah, Robin, that's the exciting part. Just this past March, mathematicians discovered something incredible. The hat, which is an aperiodic monotile. That one shape can cover an infinite surface without repeating patterns. Whoa, that's the stuff of mathematical dreams. But how do these tiles work? Great question, Robin. Infinity tiles are plastic pieces that go together like a puzzle. They connect endlessly, but here's the twist. They can also misconnect in wrong ways that lead to gaps that can't be filled. That's amazing, Mr. Hyde. But if I'm not a math genius, can I still enjoy them? Absolutely, Robin. No math degree needed. Infinity tiles are all about discovery. Whether you're playing solo or with friends of any age, finding the right fit is fun and engaging. I'm sold, Mr. Hyde. When can we give them a try? That's the spirit, Robin. You can back their Kickstarter at atlas-games.com slash infinityks. Thanks for showing me infinity tiles, Mr. Height. I can't wait! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into an episode... Oh my goodness! The Gaming Hut's a giant pit with spikes! Why, how dare you, beloved Patreon backer Bart Malio, as you invite us into an all-request episode, but also fill it with traps? Bart Malio says, please do a segment on traps. Please tell us more about traps and adventures. I really like them. And when traps work, i.e. the players solve them and are rewarded, players have a great time and feel like Indiana Jones. Tuning them and making them fun is a subtle art, however. A critical analysis would be super useful. Well, Robin, if you can back away from the poison needle darts and avoid uh, setting off the death ray... What are your critical analysis thoughts on F20 traps? So my two main tips are, uh, first of all, don't switch modes. So don't go from a situation where all along people have been rolling dice to find out what their characters do and suddenly go, oh, well, now the players have to solve this. And so you may have a group that loves solving puzzles as a separate activity as much as they enjoy role-playing games and also enjoy solving puzzles as a group within the narrative of a role-playing game, in which case do that. But you, chances are, you do not have uh, four to six players who want that. Chances are you have zero players who want that, or maybe one player who likes doing puzzles. So don't make it a puzzle that the players have to solve, but like any other obstacle that they're encountering, have ways for their characters to solve things using roles. Now, as with any role, you influence what it is that you're trying to do with your description, 
of your actions, but you're not just switching into, you know, a video game mode where that way to get to the fun is to find which brick you have to move to the other thing, because that's tedious and it's tedious, whether it's a literal trap or whether it's a riddle you have to solve that. I think we agree on that, right, Ken? Yeah, I mean, the, the the real problem is that, as you say, it's two incompatible types of fun. The puzzles is a different fun than role-playing games, and arguably also a different type of fun than tactical skirmish fighting, which is what many uh, traps are set in the middle of. And so the question of, you know, at what point is the player supposed to solve it is... Ideally, if the player wants to solve it or the players are all eager to solve it, let them do that. Don't like say, no, 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 you have to roll intelligence to see if you guess the answer. But the ideal trap, I think, in this sort of setting has a very cool initial presentation where it's like, well, we know that if we try and take that idol, there's going to be a trap. We have to think about this. You give them the opportunity to think about how to do it, maybe. And then once they're clearly bored with the puzzle, which in some groups is going to be instantly, you then provide a fun and exciting challenge way of solving the puzzle. So if no one is thinking about it, you have the rogue, you know, make a roll. And if the rogue succeeds, he says, oh, I've seen this kind of thing before. It's a pressure plate. We have to replace the idol with a thing that weighs exactly as much as the idol, or we're going to trigger something awful. And then the players can all sort of think together. What do we have? What do we have? What do we have? You know, that I don't think you have to then roll again for a bag of sand, but you know, if you do, you can. And then the decks roll to switch it out without triggering the cool trap. And in many cases, triggering the cool trap as in Indiana Jones is part of what makes it fun, right? That you can imagine a, a world in which Indiana Jones perfectly replaces the idol and the ball doesn't come down and he just walks out of the dungeon, I'm, excuse me, the ruin, just whistling a happy t- jaunty tune, but that makes a less fun story. So the third element of, I think, an ideal trap is for it to go off, but in a danger-enhancing or fun-enhancing way rather than a, ha-ha, everyone take nine dice damage way. Because... If, if that's what your end goal is, just do kind of like 13th Age does and abstract a trap and say, poison darts ripple through the corridor. Everyone takes such and such damage, and it becomes an environmental hazard really more than a trap. Right. And if the trap is more fun to see set off, your trick there is to have the players not feel, A, dumb or like failures for failing to defuse it, and also not feeling probably this is a time when they would use the many-headed word railroading mm-hmm. don't make them feel that they succeeded and then got screwed anyway. And so you might want to have, you know, some other factor is the thing that causes the trap to actually go off. Like, you know, a, a creature slithers around and betrays them. or Right. There's a jerk kobold you know, Some other thing that it's not just you failed, you know, you succeeded and maybe even you got some sort of benefit, but you you know, you're not a dummy for failing to, mm-hmm. you know, diffuse the trap that is more interesting when it goes off. Or just don't present that as something that they can diffuse. It's like you open the door, you go into the corridor, and oh, there's a giant ball rolling toward you. And so it's not, if you never present that one as something that they would naturally get to uh, diffuse, they're not going to feel dumb about that. I want to back up one little bit, though, to the other main suggestion I have for making traps interesting, which is to make them multi-stage, so more than one role, and also allow more than one character to deal with them. 
generally, of course, you're going to want the, the rogue or the thief or whatever variant of that to, you know, always participate with any trap, maybe have more than one thing to do uh, given any trap, because by selecting that character type, that's what that player showed an interest in doing. So you don't want to even it out completely and ruin their shtick. Mm-hmm. But at the other hand, you want some way for other the other players to be involved. So it's not just, you know, Randall uh, makes six rolls and everybody else uh, hangs around. So look for different ways for a real trap defusing scene to happen in a series of stages where you have to overcome multiple obstacles and you can succeed at some obstacles and get a bonus. Or if you fail, it doesn't, you know, on roll number three out of four, that doesn't mean the whole trap goes off, but your next roll is harder, for example. And I think a good model for this is actually bomb defusing scenes in movies. They can be relatively extended and they happen in a series of steps and you get to the, oh, I didn't expect, you know, a reverse flange. Oh my gosh, this nearly, you know, blew up in my hand or whatever it is. Simon Pegg begins to like stutter when he's calling Ethan Hunt on the radio to say, oh, it's sped up, it's sped up. Exactly. So look for ways to uh, extend the trap and make it into um, more of a thing that you feel over a period of time rather than spot trap, diffuse trap, right? That's uh, not fun at all. Also, uh, let people envision what the consequences will be if the trap goes off. So, for example, you know, you see the bag of poison gas and it's like, oh, no, our our rolls against poison gas aren't that great. We better not, you know, punch this bag here. Have you got magician? Do you have some way of levitating this, for example? Or cleric, can you call on the gods? I could really use a prayer here. So, think of ways that all of the different character types could help in defusing a trap. It's like, you know, hey, Druid, can you, you know, get those bugs over there to come and, you know, sit on this thing and, you know, provide grease for the the wheel when I turn the wheel up? Uh, And I think that will be a fun way to make the traps more elaborate and also different if you start reverse engineering from the, you know, what can every character class do with a trap? Mm -hmm. Yeah, some traps are obviously the rogue's spotlight moment, but you don't make those the six roll solutions. You make those the two roll or three roll solutions because you're giving that character a spotlight moment. But again, ideally you should be describing a trap in such evocative detail that the players kind of want to see it go off, even though they know that it's going to be bad. And also that they can think outside the box and say, yeah, I'm the Druid. I'm going to, you know, clot this trap up with wasps. And so the, the gears, when they turn, they're going to, you know, crunch the wasps instead of, you know, go smoothly. And that'll buy us an extra, you know, round of action or whatever. And that's the sort of, you know, thing that you can't predict, which is the whole point of playing a role-playing game instead of watching a movie, is that this sort of thing can happen in a moment. The other thing that I I enjoy about traps is when the trap is happening and something else is happening, ideally a combat sequence but it might be, you know, an intercut like your bomb disposal scene, which is usually during a fight or whatever else. But I like the kobolds in 13th Age that are trap creators, and that's one of their powers to make the combat environment super trapped and annoying in a good way. I like that because that adds, you know, it forces sort of tactical awareness and, and thinking about the battle space in a creative way, in a way that just, whacking each other with pole axes doesn't. And so if you can 
create a trap that as it goes off, the fight gets worse and more dangerous is part of the flaw. You know, the old bridge collapses and now there's a big chasm of lava is great, but it's more exciting if you're also being attacked by Sturges when the bridge collapses and there's a chasm of lava. Even if the solution is still, I cast Featherfall and jump across, it's more exciting when you're floating through a cloud of Sturges than if you're just floating over lava. Another thing you can do with a trap is sort of set it up as a thing that you encounter at one point, perhaps diffuse and get past, and then maybe you can find a way to bring it back into the story again. So mm-hmm. if they're, you know, fleeing down uh, the corridor pursued by uh, centipede folk, then, you know, they can hit the trap and have it go off once they're past it, and all of the spikes and shrapnel can uh, hit the centipede folk and abet their escape. And so uh, it's always fun to have something that is introduced in one context and that you can uh, bring back in another. That, of course, only works if the player's choose to go back down that corridor again and you can ensure that by making sure that they have to on the map and there's also the idea that what if there's other people around setting traps in the dungeon while you're around that is not a static environment that uh, you know the centipede folk have a trap artificer or, or perhaps these pals with a, a cobalt or what have you and therefore you know this uh, corridor that was perfectly clear before you come back and now it has a trap. And so that, I think, increases the emotional stakes of that because you know someone in this building or, or tunnel complex put that there just recently, deliberately to get you. And so that can then inspire you to go and find the trap maker and have a, a, a D&D style conversation with them. I mean, meaning fight <laughs> in order to, uh, you know, chastise them for having done that. And so that, uh, again, is a a setup and a payoff in two different moments. Yeah. One of the big pieces of advice that I would give to every fall of Delta green keeper or handler is when the players set up Claymore mines, remember where they did it and remember if they had a tripwire, because there's nothing more fun than players finding a monster going crazy, running away from the monster and running right into their own Claymore mines. That's, that's a delight on every level. So, you know, Players who can set traps, I think that's a great thing. I think you should encourage it. Again, I think it improves tactical thinking. You can do that in an F20 context with a rogue or whatever. But, you know, once they're set... It makes the the dreaded defensive fight much more interesting if they can be setting traps. Right. And then I I guess that sort of opens up a little bit of a non-F20 trap setting. I think the canonical one would be the haunted house where the poltergeist is you know, constantly messing with you or the haunted house was built by an insane uh, puzzle maker who, who, you know, his spirit is there activating all these traps, that sort of thing. But you can imagine, you know, all the way down to a, you know, a nice black agents thing where you're going up against a, a terrorist compound or a, or a vampire mercenary outpost. And sure enough, they've got traps around. It's a minefield and barbed wire. It's that's traps. And you have to be able to defeat those, in the same way that uh, people have to in the real world, but in a role-playing game, you get to be sort of cool uh, Jason Bourne types to defeat it, and that's, you know, not practicable in a battle, but it's super fun in a role-playing game if they're thinking, oh, this is a minefield, I know what those can do, that's terrible, here's how we can get past it in our, you know, exciting uh, cinematic idiom. Well, at this point, Ken, I think I'd like you to go ahead 
and sort of scout, see if there's any traps that uh, lie waiting for us between this segment, the exciting commercial, and the segment on the other side. You got it, Robin. I think I'll just touch every unusually shaped block of the... Oh, my God! Palgrain Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-mashed minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. The festive old-timey music, the bunting, the floats, and the gigantic hideous masked figure tell us that we're once more in the History Hut. And this time around, uh, we are there at the behest of indomitable backer Patrick Crowley, who says... The Veiled Prophet of St. Louis. How can we use the Prophet and his unmasking in 1972 by action in our horror gaming, outside of the obvious howling of no mask, no mask from the audience? So this is quite the story of uh, some a city where the, all the rich folk, instead of doing what the rich families who control a city usually do, which is quietly fund museums and band shells and have fundraisers, decided to get a little bit ostentatious about uh, flaunting their wealth and status in a fun 19th century way that uh, definitely does evoke Carcosa a bit. Yeah, the um, rich folk, the titular rich folk, as you bring them up, are the Veiled Profit Organization. It's a fraternal secret society like the Elks, except that its only purpose in this case is to throw this big party. The Veiled Prophet doesn't meet like if they're not planning this giant parade and ball. Th- their only role is to is to make the uh, the party happen. Right. They're and not doing good works or anything. No, just- they're, they're not doing anything on the side. And their excuse for being a secret society is we're not doing it for public acclaim. So showing our identities would be, you know, taking too much credit. But everyone knows it's all the rich people in St. Louis that do it. So it's founded as the mysterious order of the veiled prophet, uh, as I say, in 1878, two businessmen brothers, Charles and Alonzo Slayback, 
great names. They are originally of New Orleans. Uh, they moved to St. Louis after the war, and uh, they take the idea for a big festive parade from the New Orleans Mardi Gras parades that are run by the crew of Comus, Comus being the Roman god of festivities. And the name of their organization is taken from the Veiled Prophet of Coruscant, which is one of the narratives in the Thomas More poem, Lala Rook, which had a, a vogue in the 19th century, I think it's fair to say. For example, in 1889, a bunch of Masons in Hamilton, New York, founded the Mystic Order of Veiled Prophets of the Enchanted Realm, or Movepur, and that was founded as a club for Master Masons to get together and, and hang out. So, you know, the elites are having a club for even more elites with the Veiled Prophets. I guess Veiled Prophets just inherently anti-democratic in some fashion. Well, yes, a, a, a democratic uh, prophet would not be veiled. Right. He would he would be open to everyone. And presumably elected his profiting abilities. <laughs> right. What one assumes. In a, in a weirdly pre- Presbyterian version of the Veiled Prophet, that's that must be what happens. Yeah, Anyhow, you get up, you give speeches, you compare your past predictions. Right. I think a more... Cities should adopt that rule with their prophets. Right. Rather than having a, a, an appointee prophet who's just someone's brother-in-law. That's the word. Exactly. Yeah. What kind of predictions has he made? Right. He's just predicting prosperity for my family, mm-hmm. which is pretty accurate in fairness. Anyhow, we're, we're getting a little bit off the point. The Veil Prophet Parade is, you know, floats. There's a big parade. Civic organizations march in it. There's music. There's fireworks. There's a big riverfront fair. And then it culminates, if you will, in a big society ball, which ends when the Veiled Prophet crowns the Queen of Love and Beauty from among the assembled debutantes. And the debutantes are all the daughters of all the rich and famous people. So, again, it's not super hard to figure out who the Veiled Prophet organization is. As I say, it's founded in 1878. Some social historians say it is not a coincidence that it is founded right after the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 nearly paralyzes the country and certainly paralyzes St. Louis. And it's broken up by the actions of a vigilante band and by the St. Louis police. And coincidentally, the only veiled prophet whose identity was ever revealed by the organization was the police commissioner of St. Louis that first year. So maybe a not particularly subtle symbol. The Veiled Prophet, in case that wasn't scary enough, he gets armed attendance in 1880. In 1935, they took the garb of Bengal Lancers, which is what they still dress up as today. That's probably just them aping the Gary Cooper movie Lives of a Bengal Lancer, which was a gigantic hit also in 1935. Right. And the the float, the original float that winds it up like Santa Claus ending mm-hmm. a Santa Claus parade, initially had like a 20-foot tall effigy of this figure on it. Right. Another question you always see when you're looking at people discussing uh, this phenomenon is just how KKK was it? And it's <laughs> like, well, his, his robe is quite different because this one is sparkly and his hat is not quite as pointy. And, uh, you know, he wears a veil instead of a mask. So I don't know what you're thinking when you bring up that reference. But certainly there were lots of people, especially the black community in St. Louis, who did not consider those distinctions to be uh, particularly great. Yeah, distinction without a difference for many people. Among them, the Irish, who were mad at anti-Irish humor on a float in 1882. And since everyone who was driving the horses and cows that were pulling oxen that were pulling the floats was an Irish drover, they rapidly dumped that float. And then in 1938, the organization had not learned its lesson and once more created a stir among the Irish community with a float that was named after a popular anti-Irish drinking song of the time. So 
the veiled prophet, uh, an equal opportunity offender, I guess. The, the biggest scandal before the sixties was that in 1928, the queen of love and beauty was discovered to have been secretly married. And this legitimately got her taken out of the social register and her picture was taken down from the uh, walls of the queen of love and beauty, you know, display hall. And she was disgraced and all of her friends cut her. It was a big deal. So there is a well, the whole the debutante ball aspect of this is I right. think what people took very seriously as they yes. did in other places without twenty foot tall effigies. And this again was a uh, was a particular thorn in the side of the black community because black women are like, if this is representing St. Louis, why is it only representing half of St. Louis? And so, uh, black women uh, community leaders launched their own veiled prophets queen shadow ball in 1935 and that inspired lots of other ethnic groups in st louis to do their own veiled prophet balls sort of as you know alternative or some are lampoons some are just taking advantage of the fact that everyone's going out to party that night and why not party here right and it should be said that this was controversial right from the beginning right even like 1880 there's people throwing rocks at the floats and Mm -hmm. a part of this seems to be, you know, just once you open up an atmosphere of revelry, there are people who will test social boundaries, but also throwing rocks at a float is a pretty clear editorial. Yeah. And there was even lawsuits at the very beginning saying this private organization is using up the town square and using police protection and all kinds of things that, you know, they shouldn't get to do for free. They should pay the city. And why is this not happening? So it's been and, off and, and also on. the route was not the typical parade route that other parades had or that you expect, but they deliberately went through poor neighborhoods. They would say they were educating the poor about important mm-hmm. principles of, you know, worshiping 20 foot tall entities and that they were richer than poor people. But this was not always taken in, in the uh, spirit in which it was supposedly done. And and this may be why many parades were greeted with, at the very least, rains of peas and gravel in one report as they ran through these neighborhoods. And then they finish up down at the at the riverfront. Yeah. Uh, one of those is worse than the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, none of them are particularly good. And, uh, you know, they're not what you want your parade to be greeted by if you're a rich St. Louisan. Right. So the, the opposition to this takes on the aspect of civic opposition in whatever era. And that, of course, brings us into the 60s and into uh, what you might use to wrap a fall of Delta Green scenario around. Yeah. And this is action. The aforementioned action, which is the Action Council to Improve Opportunities for Negroes. Someone obviously doing the 60s bit where you come up with the cool word and then backfill the acronym. They begin protesting the Veiled Prophet in 1966. And then on December 23rd, 1972, at the Veiled Prophet Ball, Gina Scott, a white member of Action, is given tickets by sympathetic debutantes, and she straight up repels down from the balcony to rip the mask off the Veiled Prophet. And this reveals him as a vice president at Monsanto, Tom K. Smith Jr. Monsanto's even scarier than it turned out not to have (laughs) a mask. That's right. It's like, put the mask back on. And uh, the papers, of course, refused to print his name because the papers were all owned, coincidentally, by rich people. That's wild how that works. I'm glad the media doesn't do that anymore. So Tom Smith was only revealed much later as the as the guy in, in, involved. The action protests continued until 1976 when members of action sprayed pepper spray at the ball and were arrested and convicted of assault. And I think that and the 70s between them took most of the sales out of action. And the Veiled Prophet organization, realizing that some writing was on some wall somewhere, finally admitted black members to the organization in 1979. 
and they thought maybe that will get it all done. But the Veiled Prophet has... It's hard to, to make a show of diversity when you're a secret organization. It's when like, you're a secret society, for it. especially people. when people are masked or dressed as hilarious uh, clownish Hindus, which is a whole different problem. There was, I guess, no Indian American community in St. Louis, or at least not a big enough one to protest, but I'll bet they were not fond of the sort of Washington General's antics of the Bengal Lancers. So anyway, they, they changed the name of the party to Fair St. Louis in 1995. They move it to 4th of July to try and get everyone to sort of like chill and say, this is just our independence day party. And uh, it finally becomes the America's birthday parade in 2021 after the uh, black lives matter has begun the protesting cycle over again. And at this point, the veiled prophet basically just tries to surrender. Uh, it's still happening, but we've had beloved actress Ellie Kemper was canceled for being a veiled prophet queen. And by canceled, people were mad at her for a couple of days and she put something on Instagram and now she's fine. People yelled at her and she apologized in like a multi-stage post on Instagram. Yeah, that's, that's what canceled means. Anyway, it's still a, a raw nerve amongst people. The people have you know had to sort of back off from their involvement in it. We will see if that backing off continues because we're in... We're still in that period right now. The one thing that I did note of per perhaps mystical or gaming import in this era is that the Queen of Love and Beauty's tiara from 1896 and one of the maids tiaras from 1894 were stolen in 2018 from the Missouri History Museum. And it's a it's a nice, you know, gold and silver tiara with studded with real gems. You know, the, the rich people do themselves proud. And so to steal the Queen of Love and Beauty's Tiara from Yellow King Times is maybe a bit of a eyebrow raiser, I would say. Right. And so the trick with this, if you make it a scenario, is just as Patrick suggests that it's kind of obvious. And so I think what you'd want to do is, is what you often do with something that seems overtly weird. And the players are immediately go, well, this is the evil cult. And then it turns out that some other organization or force is using all of the controversy and uh, revelry as the cover for their own uh, completely separate operation under the radar of this thing. So you can have the players, you know, give them this misdirect and then it turns out to be some other, you know, Carcosan force that is not in the organization itself. It should be pointed out that the uh, original Veiled Prophet had a green and red outfit. And in my version of the Yellow King Mythos, Green is the color of uh, Casilda, red is the color of Camilla, so that could suggest uh, some sort of alliance of the two uh, sisters that is going on there, and they may be attempting to immunitize the Veiled Prophet as an alternative to their absentee father in order to, to topple him and then no doubt fight over who gets to be queen. And in other games, unknown armies or the like, the Veiled Prophet is more of a generator of magic than it is a specific magic person or even a ceremony, but because of the great import that is put onto the Veiled Prophet, it therefore conveys magical meaning. And so the Veiled Prophet parade is the time when you can do your misrule magics, where you can do, you know, elevate your, your hidden king archetypes. All that becomes easier because that's when, you know, the, not the stars, but the parades are right, right? And so the, the quality of the Veiled Prophet is not that the Veiled Prophet himself is a mystical figure, but that having this giant parade with a 20-foot-tall effigy and weird veiled guys going around is a sign that this is a magical time and that magic stuff should be happening at it. 
right? Right, and perhaps the stolen crowns uh, could be useful in that as batteries of uh, numinous energy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I think we've uh, turned that uh, into at least the beginnings of a scenario, and it's time for us to gather our wits and let's go talk about something even weirder than this. The best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast from falling into the razor wire of underfunding by joining such trap-defusing Patreon backers as... Hector Trelane, Jay Moore. Josh King. Christian Grunseth. And Keelan O'Hay. The shining aluminum surfaces, the crunch of arboreal rice, and the weird whistle of perfume in the air welcome us into the food hut? I guess. Oh, that's because beloved Patreon backer Rich Renalo has asked us to do something with Filippo Marinetti and his manifesto of futurist cooking. And Filippo Marinetti is a character worth 15 minutes on his own, but Robin, can you give us the two-minute Filippo Marinetti, the futurist version, the fast, violent version of Filippo Marinetti? Right. So if you're interested in, in early 20th century moderners start, you always look at the futurists and go, Wow, that's really cool. Let's find out what they're all about. And then you look it up and it's like, they're all about fascism. <laughs> it's like, let's go be fans of the surrealists instead. So he's born Emilio Marinetti in Alexandria, Egypt in 1876. And he's definitely a counterpart to the surrealist Andre Breton as uh, a critic, a poet, and an editor. And like Breton, who discovers that the Communist Party has no room for experimental weirdos. Marinetti discovers that too when he joins the fascists and then, you know, wait a minute, these fascists are all reactionaries. <laughs> What's going on here? That's not futurism at all. Yeah. I like the brutality, but I hate the columns. Right. And so he publishes his uh, Futurist Manifesto in 1909. And his quote is, art, in fact, can be nothing but violence, cruelty, and injustice. So he's not hiding it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think we should uh, mention that although you might see the same quote on Tumblr, Marinetti's in favor of those things. He's not yes. against it. Yes. And his, as we'll get to, his whole idea behind futurist cooking is to create a new, more vigorous army for killing people with, and is rooted in the same sort of body purity, male uh, virility anxiety that uh, fuels 
fascism then and now. And uh, he served in World War I uh, in 1919. He founded the Futurist Party, merges with the fascists in 1919. He co-wrote the Fascist Manifesto in 1919. And then, uh, as I said, in 1920, he discovers, hey, the fascists are all reactionaries, and he, and he leaves. But he continues his extreme right avant-gardism, and Ken, that's what leads to the Manifesto of Futurist Cooking, which is published in 1930 by Marinetti and a guy named uh, Luigi Colombo, also known as Filia. He's a painter and an architect and a designer. And so maybe uh, you can describe some of the recipes and proscriptions that Marinetti includes in this cookbook. Yeah, the Manifesto of Futurist Cooking believes that food should be of the future. It should be local as much as possible, and it should be prepared in a scientific environment. And so when you're talking about local, he says, for example, you should use arborio rice instead of pasta because pasta is made from imported wheat. Right. And we think of the, the locavore movement now as being sort of a, a lefty heal the planet thing. But his <laughs> idea there was we have to import wheat to make pasta. So let's use foods that we have uh, a supply of and can't be blockaded because we're thinking of making some armies and killing some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so pasta causes a lassitude and pessimism and that lack of virility that, as you uh, mentioned, is a ongoing concern for futurism and fascism. We also don't need knives and forks. You should be able to eat everything with your hands in tiny little bites. Everything should smell. You should be able to eat with your whole body, smell of the food. So right. you serve meat with cologne or uh, mussels with vanilla or other things. Right. And so here we're coming to a part of this is that in no way does this seem calculated in order to make palatable, enjoyable food. No. <laughs> it's supposed to be upsetting, disjunctive food that I guess, again, makes you want to be angry and, and put a bayonet on your rifle. Yep. And then also the notion is that you use various exciting scientific devices, ozonizers, to make food smell like ozone, put food under an ultraviolet lamp to activate its vitamins. You electrolyze food to decompose it and break it up into new different kinds of things. So again, we're seeing a parallel to the wellness movement, which is generally proto-fascist, <laughs> wherever you see it. <laughs> and, and also you're seeing a sort of a foreshadowing of molecular gastronomy because this notion of breaking food down into its chemical elements and then presenting it in a visually exciting, though perhaps tastely off-putting way. Yes, in a series of tiny little bites. In a series of tiny little bites. And then food should be, you know, prepared in an autoclave instead of an oven. Things like this that sort of, you know, the the attempt is to scientificize, if that's even a word, but futurism, so I'm sure it is, the, the food production. So the other thing that, because he's an artist or he's working with an artist, you have food that is making a, a, a point, as Robin says, angering the, the consumer. So you have divorced eggs. So you would take the yolk of an egg and put it on a potato puree. So it looks like it's an egg, but it's not. And then you would put the white of the egg underneath a little lump of carrots. So it looks like an egg, but it's not there. The eggs have been divorced from their, you know, uh, old connections. They're still right. giving you the nutrition, but they look and taste different. There's, there's diabolical roses, which are just deep fried roses. Deep -fried I'm sure you roses. can get that in so, Scotland today. Yeah, I'm going to, going to pass on that. Right. The one thing that sounds kind of edible, although I'm not a big liver recommender is the immortal trout, which is a trout uh, stuffed with chopped nuts, fried in olive oil, and then it's wrapped in thin calf's liver slices. Less appealing, however, apparently, was the tennis chop, which is a veal cutlet, anchovies, and a banana 
arranged as a tennis racket. Well, you know, who doesn't love the occasional tennis racket? Right. And anchovies show up a lot. Mm-hmm. There's the anchovy and apple skin sandwich. Again, kind of pass on that one. There's milk in a green light, which is uh, milk, honey, grapes, and radishes all under a green light. So you uh, you enjoy that uh, milk soup with mineral water, beer, and blackberry juice in a polybibita. Again, if this sounds like it could be any, you know, avant-garde cooking place in New York, this is probably not a coincidence. Uh, he even has a suggestion for a tactile dinner where you serve, uh, you introduce the meal in pitch blackness. Everyone's given pajamas with a different texture. So it, you might be wearing a sponge pajama, a cork pajama, sandpaper pajamas. And then as the guests arrive, they have to touch someone. And when they've found someone they want to touch the pajamas of, it's not that kind of restaurant. Then you go and you eat in pitch darkness. And it's, it's great fun. Which is starting to prefigure installation performance art. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't, and the surrealists are also doing Similar things for the opposite ideology over in, in France. <laughs> yes. It's, it's almost as though uh, Stalinism and fascism both involve a great amount of anti-humanism or else it's no fun. Right. Although whenever we talk about Stalinism and surrealism, I have to say that Breton was the first French intellectual to notice there was something up with that. And he right. broke from Stalin pretty early, unlike others who uh, stayed with it for decades. It longer than Stalin in some cases. Yeah. yeah so... That's basically the vibe. The first futurist restaurant opens in Turin in 1931. Again, it, all the surfaces are brushed aluminum. It's sterile and clean and metal. And it looks like, you know, high end restaurants look now in many cases because it's the argument of, you know, we're presenting a, a science. You're, you're doing this thing for cleanliness and health. You're not doing it for your low animal instincts. You're, you're trying to get your vitamins and go. And that's the, that, that's the vibe. And so in many ways, they published the futurist cookbook or the futurist kitchen, I think is maybe a better translation in 1932, which has a lot of the recipes and, and vibes that we talked about earlier. And of course, everyone in Italy, Robin embraces them and says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the tyranny of pasta away from us. Right. Is that what happens? <laughs> Yeah, that, that is exactly what doesn't happen. Now, this does revive futurism, which has, by the early 30s, is seen as passé, but mostly because it gives people a thing to get mad about in the press. Mm-hmm. And so, this pleases both sides of the spectrum, having a nonsense controversy to get angry about, and it, you know, revives interest in futurism, and also gives uh, the people who think it's nonsense uh, something to yell about enjoy being mad about so that sort of outrage enjoyment is is not new to our era either this is also <laughs> a, i guess a prefiguration of uh, like today you know people would put that weird offensive food up on their instagram account along with a no doubt a link to click to uh, buy supplements so i guess what we've established ken is that if we're having a rigatoni or a lasagna or a fusilli or uh, even like a, a angel hair spaghetti that we're striking a blow against fascism. That's what I do. I, I try to do that as often as I possibly can. You know, I, I enjoy dishes in big amounts. That's me putting a thumb in Mussolini's eye. Often my food is imported because that's the kind of guy I am. I eat food that is not from Illinois. That's just my attitude sometimes. So I'd almost lean. I know that 30s is Trail of Cthulhu, but I'm almost thinking like an Esoterror prequel because this purposely disjunctive food and these uh, uh, weird ideas seem like something that someone would be doing in order to summon the out of dark. So you might have a, a 30s prequel scenario with the grandfathers of your current characters uh, showing up in, in Italy and uh, dealing with this weird restaurant, which 
you know, of course, naturally has a has a gate to the other realm in it. I do like the idea of uh, futurism as proto-esoteric. That's very cool and has a lot of, I think, bite to it. Pun perhaps intended. If you're doing a straight up, you know, futurist restaurant as Cthulhu Hook, I guess the obvious hook is this is the great race of Yith. You know, they've seen what food is going to look like in the 80s and 2020s, and they're just getting a jump on it. They actually genuinely love anchovy and apple skin sandwiches. They, they do, or at least they know their human mouths enjoy it, or they think they do. And then this could be a tell. This could be a thing that your Yithian agent does wherever he is, and then you're you're tracking it down, and it turns out the Turin is the center of the lamplighters, the Yith supporters, who are keeping the Yithians happy as they time kidnap tour throughout uh, the 1930s. And that can be a, a fun detail that you reveal as you go. That why is this guy? Why is this guy always frying roses and eating them? What's that? That's messed up. And then you realize, oh, he's eating future food because he's from Yith. And that's what's going on. Well, uh, now that we've uh, suggested to the Yithians what they should order on Uber Eats. Our work here is done, except we have another segment to go, and it's on the other side of this exciting commercial message. In Delta Green... Cosmic Terror meets Modern Conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs. Kind of wave at the landing where uh, we see the portrait of the mystical fire salamander. He gives us a little friendly wink. And we head on into the parlor of the consulting occultist. And this time around, the consulting occultist is going to respond to a question from a redoubtable Patreon backer, Scott Wachter, who asks, what is the reason for astrologers to suppress Ophiuchus? And I'm not sure if suppress uh, is quite the right word. Uh, I think not bother with, mm -hmm. or perhaps that's the veil. Ken, tell us about the Serpent Bearer. Ophiuchus, the Serpent Bearer, is a constellation. It's a real constellation, and it's so real that it is actually on the ecliptic. It's between Scorpio and Sagittarius, and so if you were legitimately concerned about what constellations are on the ecliptic, then it would be in the Zodiac. It would be right there, and it would take up the spot of the ecliptic, most of it, that's uh, run by Sagittarius, because the sun is in Ophiuchus, uh, basically in the last three quarters of Sagittarius, although 
Obviously, you can, you know, move those around uh, as you wish. Ophiuchus is generally seen to represent Asclepius, the god of healing. And so, because Asclepius held magical snakes that gave him knowledge of medicine, that's where we get the, you know, Caduceus for the hospitals and whatnot. Right. He he might be seen more as a a snake uh, tamer, even, than a Mm -hmm. snake bearer. He takes the poison of the snakes and uses them for uh, truth and justice and healing. Exactly. So the sign of Ophiuchus is, as I say, it's on the ecliptic. But fortunately, Robin, that doesn't matter because where the stars are has nothing to do with your sign at this point. The procession of the equinoxes means that if you're in Aries, you were born when the sun was in Pisces anyway, because the Babylonians set it up one way, as far as astronomers can tell, 401 BC. And since then, the earth has pointed in a different direction in the heavens. And so now it's Pisces. But even the Babylonians knew that doesn't matter, that what we're talking about is a mystical house of the sky, not a specific pattern of stars. Ptolemy says that in the Almagest. Classical astronomers knew all about the procession of the equinoxes, and they were very clear that it doesn't matter with sun sign astrology. But In fairness, they were barely ever concerned with sun sign astrology. That doesn't become a thing until the 30s in uh, astrology columns because it's easier to write and explain. So people have suggested adding it to the astrological uh, zodiac. Astrologer Stephen Schmidt suggested it in 1970. Another pair of astrologers, Walter Berg and Mark Yazaki, suggested it in 1995. There are some Japanese astrologers that use it now. The astronomer Park Kunkel suggested it as a joke in 2011, as in, ah, you guys love the Zodiac so much, how come you don't have Ophiuchus on it? And then NASA, in a ham-fisted attempt to debunk astrology, says, well, if you're really paying attention, and this is in a blog post in 2016 that blew up on Tumblr, and everyone's like, NASA's not taking my Sagittarius away. (laughs) Well, people are still bitter about Pluto. Well, Pluto, don't even get me started, Robin. Pluto's got real issues, but this was uh, just NASA trying to amusingly debunk astrology and instead making a bunch of Tumblr people mad. Right. And by NASA, it was, you know, some, some blogger. freelancer or, right. you know, communications person writing a quick blog entry right. for kids. But, th- but they were smart enough not to sign it, which I think is the important thing. Right. And so, I guess the real mystical question is who suddenly started talking recently about Ophiuchus in order to get people all excited about it? Because one of the articles that I found while I was researching this basically flat out says, there's a 13th sign that's been added. Yep, this new sign has been added to the Zodiac. Get in line. Figure it out. It's, it's, the, it's a fait accompli. And that suggests to me that, you know, a, a snake bearer has uh, hooked up with some serious, uh, numinous public relations. And in fairness, if you are an Ophiuchus, you are probably sly. That's one of your characteristics. So, and you're you're ardent, so you really want this for yourself. Mm-hmm. You're meddlesome. You you won't don't want to leave proper twelve sign zodiac alone. Right. Uh, you're inquisitive, so you have lots of investigative abilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're jealous. Maybe you're jealous of cool, fun Capricorn and or. Uh, awesome Scorpio, and you want to have a fight with them because you're a hothead. Right, uh, you're also hot-headed, which yeah. goes right with that. But you're a procrastinator, so maybe you've been waiting to do this for uh, decades and are only now just getting mm-hmm. around to it. And the, the actual date matters no more than your actual correspondence to the actual heavens. Right. And if you weren't charismatic, no one would pay attention to you. So you must be charismatic. I think we've uh, deduced what Ophiuchuses are like based on who's pushing this in the Twitter sphere. And I'm sure the Astro Talk is full of 
Ophiuchus, but right. even I, I assume also it could also just be a strike at the Sagittarians, right? Because yeah. they're the they're the ones who seventy five percent of them have to completely adjust their star sign and self conception if mm-hmm. people start thinking this, right? And that leaves hardly any Sagittarians. So I guess so. Is there some sort of mystic convergence being pushed by you know alien demons from another realm who? Uh, they know that Sagittarians are best equipped to defeat them, so they need to eliminate people who regard themselves as Sagittarians. That might be the the true cosmic uh, thing happening, right? I, I do have some spore of this. There is a, a wonderful book that is half earnest Victorian science and half nonsense. It's a guy named Richard Hinckley Allen wrote a book called Star Names, Their Lore and Meaning. And he did his darn best. But in this book, he says that Ophiuchus is also associated with Cacius, the blinding one slain by Hercules and celebrated by Dante in the Inferno. And if you go and you look up that part of Dante, Dante identifies Cacus as a centaur with serpent characteristics. Now, this is nowhere in the classical legend at all. But if you're trying to kill a centaur, which is Sagittarius is a centaur, and you're trying to kill him with serpent, Dante is somehow involved. That's, that's, that's the information that I have. I have no idea what you do with that necessarily, but it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, the Babylonians, speaking of our buddy Richard Inkley Allen, the Babylonians, according to him and who should know better, identified it as Nutsirda or Sagimu, the god of invocation. Actual archaeologists suggest that it is called the seated god not the roaring one, which is what Sagamu means, and possibly the snake-footed judge god Ishtaran, who was a god of this sort of backwater town way off in the east of Mesopotamia, and no one really paid attention to it. And that's why Ishtaran doesn't really get, you know, the big credit. And in fact, there is a existing poem that talks about all the gods that must be dead because no one worships them anymore, and Ishtaran is one of them. And this may be why, when the Babylonians are dividing the sky up into an easily divisible 12 houses and establishing tropical astrology they're like oh man do we have to have ishtaran in there can we just leave him out no one worships him he's uncool he's stupid what if this cool archer let's do sagittarius instead also centaurs of course in mythology are unruly sometimes dangerous badasses Mm -hmm. and it may well be that you know if people start representing their uh, star signs more uh, thoroughly that uh, again the alien force that's about to invade us could uh, want them out of the way. So turning, you know, tough-minded, six-limbed Sagittarians into uh, peaceful healer Ophiuchus types could also be uh, part of that. So I guess maybe our scenario is beginning to center itself around the idea of people's zodiac signs, whatever they tend to identify with, becoming more real and taking on a mystical or even physical aspect. This might affect everyone, but I think it's more fun if it only affects people who kind of believe it. And that could, you know, cause all kinds of havoc as people uh, start to become more like bulls or scorpions or all the other various things. Uh, and of course, you would, you know, need us Librans to keep everything in, in balance with our uh, unexciting doll scientific instrument symbol mm-hmm. uh, to keep all of everybody's crazy animals in, in check. Well, Robin, now that you've brought balance to the force and equability to the skies, 
I didn't know Canadian was a star sign, but then I'm not an astrologer. <laughs> yes, everyone in Canada is, is born in October. Is a Libra, basically. Anyway, once you've done that, the last thing I think we should do is attempt to insert more confusion into an already nonsensical field like astrology. We should just back away slowly and maybe come back next week for different nonsense at a different time. Or actually, the same time. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Asphagelm. Art Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Gorgeous. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from the dread steel chicken. That's another futurist uh, dish, by the way. Alongside such tasteful backers as... Dan Simons. Jeff Cars. Jean-Francois Parody. Carl Schmidt. And Louis Sylvester. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest design You Are a Special Island. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>